Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. years ago, the first British ships carrying enslaved Africans came to America. The vast majority of these slaves had lived free lives until their world collided with the cruelty and profiteering of Europeans that believed black Africans represented a subhuman species that were placed on earth as mere chattel. This system of slavery lasted until the 19th century after displacing some 10 million people. In history lessons across America and Europe, slavery in recent years has entered the curriculum in an era of liberal contrition. However, my guest this week argues that an Orientalist narrative is often forwarded, depicting Africans as backwards and devoid of all culture. At the heart of this black Orientalism is the notion that these slaves do not come from a culture rooted in civilization. My name is Muhammad Jalal and your host on the Thinking Muslim podcast, and my guest this week is Hakim Mohammed. He argues that narratives about the slave trade barely mention the Muslim origin of many Africans that were indeed enslaved, their courageous attempts to remain Muslim despite severe repression, and indeed the role Islam played as a basis of defiance and the driver behind many of the slave rebellions on plantations. Hakim charts the role of Christianity in legitimizing slavery, but also how forcible conversions were used to pacify slaves. For Hakim, the advent of liberalism did little to reverse the racialized worldview. He suggests early liberal philosophers like Locke and Kant were proponents of slavery and talked openly about subjugating Africans in pursuit of economic gain. Controversially, his view is liberalism remains interlinked with the notion of white supremacy and as such can never resolve the structural racism inherent in American 
and European societies. I must say I found many of his assertions thought-provoking and probed him on his view that white supremacy remains a dominant feature of modern liberal democracies. In my view, what is clear is that liberalism may profess to be an ideology that looks to create an egalitarian society, but in reality it has never managed to remove racism as a way of thinking and indeed even progressive liberals all too often replace racial hierarchies with cultural ones professing on the one hand equality but reducing foreign cultures and religions as inferior. This is more pronounced in the way liberals continue to see Islam as backwards and the only good Muslim are those that justify Islamic practice through the prism of liberalism. Hakeem Muhammad is from the south side of Chicago and is the founder and president of the Black Dawah Network. He has lectured and taught in the areas of black political thought and critical race theory at Berkeley and Harvard universities. He has a bachelor's in political science and is currently a law student at Northeastern University School of Law, where he's a public interest scholar. Hakim has worked as a student attorney in the areas of prisoners' rights and criminal defence. He was selected for the National Association of Criminal Defence Lawyers Fellowship that pairs students to work under top criminal defence practitioners in the country. We also discuss his thoughts on Afrocentrism, his view on the Black Lives Matter movement, the role Malcolm X plays in his outreach, and I ask him about a recent debate doing the rounds on Muslim Twitter on critical race theory. In my view, we live in a world where all too often debates, especially on social media, are reduced to mere sound bites seldom shedding any light on important topics. We at the Thinking Muslim podcast look to do the opposite by providing a platform where we learn from one another and to help foster a unity that is often missing in so many of our public debates. Hakim Muhammad, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum salam, brother. Thank you for having me on, brother. It's a real honor to be able to speak on this program and to discuss some of these critical issues with you. Jazakallah and It's wonderful to have you here today, brother. Let me start by asking you about your initiative, the Black Dawah Network. Uh, what's, uh, what's it about and uh, why have you created this uh, network uh, that uh, engages in Dawah uh, in black communities? Sure. So within the African-American community, within many Black communities, there's been a real rise of Black Orientalism or individuals who see themselves as being Afrocentrist and who see Islam and Black liberation or Islam and Af being African as being two mutually opposing forces. And so there's a lot of individuals who are rising within social media who will either vilify Islam as being quote unquote complicit in Arab subjugation of black people. And so based upon this, me and as well as some other uh, colleagues of mine, brother Sharif Muhammad, brother Salim Abdul Khalik, we saw the need to really just galvanize together and to begin to intellectually challenge some of these ideas of Afrocentrism. And this just transformed into just a larger effort of Islamic outreach within uh, many uh, desolated African-American communities in general. So 
for my, my personal background is I used to do some uh, work within some Dawa organizations, but I noticed that mainly a lot of their focus was on atheism and uh, proofs, pr proofs of gods, because there's a large current in atheism among certain sectors. But within the African-American community, I, I, we see like there was really impugning, uh, the was really seeking to impugn the legitimacy of Islam is black orientalism. And so based upon that, we decided to just galvanize together around this initiative. And you mentioned Afrocentrism. Can you elaborate uh, on, on that idea? What is Afrocentrism? Yeah, so Afrocentrism, ironically, its founder was a, a Senegalese Muslim brother by the name of Sheikh Antidiop. And Afrocentrism, it was founded to counter certain European distortions about history. Europeans, such as Hegel, they rendered Africa as this place devoid of history, this place that made no major contributions to world history, to science, to mathematics. And so it began as like this noble endeavor to articulate what were the contributions of African people to the world. And so a Senegalese Muslim brother by the name of Sheikh Antidiop, because there was this uh, Europeans who were telling lies about ancient Egypt being a non-African civilization or ancient Egypt being uh, not a civilization that was not produced by Black people, what Sheikh Antidiop sought to do was he sought to prove that the ancient Egyptians uh, were Black people and that the ancient Egyptians made these major uh, contributions to world history. So it came originally as a way to challenge European distortions of history. But in its original inception, it wasn't about opposing Islam at, at all. It was about centering the contributions of African people. Um, Sheikh Antajiyah himself, he was a Muslim. He came from, you know, a generation of Muslims families. But unfortunately, as Afrocentrism began to evolve and it began to continue, the, the, it became like an anti-Islam strand within it. And these are individuals who see Islam as not being sufficiently African or not sufficiently Black or being complicit in Arab subjugation of Black people. Well, that's really interesting. So uh, Afrocentrists, today at least, uh, not in its original formation, um, see Islam as a, a religion that's foreign to the African continent. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And there's numerous um, problems in terms of like their methodology, in terms of their political as well as social out outlooks that you know we can elaborate upon. But the main one is that to even their assumptions about what was authentically African is even predicated upon European cartography and a European division of the map. The notion of the Red Sea being the split between Africa and Asia in and of itself is a product of European cartography. And that's just one of one ways in which many uh, Afrocentrists, they inherit European uh, assumptions of the world, willingly or unwillingly. I noticed on your website that um, as part of your uh, Dawah initiatives, um, you hand out copies of Malcolm X's biography uh, to uh, uh, to the black communities. Um, why do you hand out Malcolm X's biography? I mean, what's what's behind that, uh, and and why is Malcolm X uh, an important figure uh, in uh, explaining or dispelling the myths uh, that you mentioned about uh, Islam? Sure. So 
Malcolm X is somebody who's really influential within the African-American community, even among uh, non-Muslims, even uh, the Afrocentrists, they love and they adore Malcolm X. And what's, what's so ironic is that although Malcolm X is seen as this sort of heroic figure within African-American communities, even, even among Afrocentrists, very few look at, you know, what was the ideology that transformed his life? What was the worldview that impacted him to become the man that he was. And so what's so significant about Malcolm X is as an early youngster, he was a quite brilliant within school, but his teacher told him that he wanted to be a lawyer when he grew up, but his teacher told him that that was no job for a Black person, that instead he should be a carpenter. And so he was impacted early on just by racism within the school system. And he dropped out of prison and, you know, he got involved in street life. He got involved in drugs. He got involved in prostitution. He got involved in a lot of criminal enterprises. And he first began to, uh, he was exposed first uh, through the Nation of Islam within, within prison while he was incarcerated. And that just motivated him to read and to read and to study. But the significance of Malcolm X's autobiography is that it shows the transformative impact of Islam within an individual. And what's also significant about it is that many brothers that we work with within urban inner cities, they can relate to Malcolm X's life, you know, before Islam, and they can be inspired by that to transform their own lives through Islam, inshallah. Inshallah ta'ala. And um, um, so your outreach, your da'wah takes place uh, largely in uh, these um, uh, communities in in the south side of Chicago, right? So, um, so we we've had one event in uh, Malcolm X's former neighborhood in uh, Dudley Square. It's pretty uh, f- famous, uh, prominent area, and so Boston, South Side Chicago. But there's also, inshallah, going to be an event on Feb- uh, February twenty uh, second, when it's going to the same sort of initiative of dawa within urban inner city communities is going to take place in atlanta memphis as well as chicago simultaneously mashallah that's that's really that's really a great initiative and and what's been the general response from the recipients of this dawa yeah so you know it's uh it's 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 range you know i've had many brothers come up to me saying that just receiving that book uh made their day that you know they they love malcolm x and people who you know Many times people think that, you know, oh, they won't read the book. And so they have this pessimistic attitude. But I've I've had a beautiful response from many people saying, you know, they haven't read it in a while, but they really are going to uh, read this book. And it really just uh, makes their day just to even receive the book and to know that somebody that, that what Malcolm, another significance of Malcolm X's life is that for people within, you know, these desolated urban inner cities, his life just really serves as like an inspiration and gives them hope that they can make it up out of the situation that they're in. Now, this year marks 400 years since the first European ships arrived in America, full of slaves from Africa. Uh, These slaves were forcibly removed from their countries and brought to uh, America uh, in order to work on uh, the plantations and, and work in the farms uh, that were run by European settlers to, to the United States. It's your contention that many of these slaves were Muslims, but history tends to airbrush them out of uh, the narrative about the transatlantic slave trade. 
Yeah, and I, I really like the point that you made about European initiation of of this racialized system of slavery, because especially within the within many certain segments of the Muslims uh, community currently, there's been a lot of nuanced discussions about liberalism and liberalism's impact on the Muslim world. But what needs to also be interjected in this discussion is liberalism and liberalism's connection with white supremacy. When we go to foundational uh, thinkers of liberalism, such as John Locke, John Locke actually wrote a treatise where he advocated that uh, white slave masters could kill their black slaves with impunity, even though this is one of the foundational thinkers of liberalism. There's also Immanuel Kant, who wrote a treatise on the proper way to beat black slaves in order to attract better labor from them. And so when we discuss liberalism, especially as Muslims, it's important to discuss its connection to white supremacy, who was considered to be a liberal subject, who was excluded from the liberal idea of a social contract. And especially when we talk about the impact of liberalism, its impact isn't just upon, you know, colonialism within the Muslim world, but it's also had a direct impact upon slavery as well as Muslims. So one of uh, the most um, renowned figures of African-American literature was a woman by the name of Phyllis Wheatley. And Phyllis Wheatley, she was taken as a young girl from, from West Africa. She was taken to the Americas. And today, many people just know her as this uh, prolific African-American writer because during that era in history, it was illegal uh, for black people to learn how to read and write, but she was one of the uh, one of the exceptions. And so they, she wrote numerous books, uh, numerous uh, works of poetry, and they were read by individuals such as Voltaire, uh, Voltaire, such as George Washington. But a little known fact about Phyllis Wheatley is that the reason why that she was learned to learned how to read is that when she first came to the, to her household of her slave master. She, they, they saw that she was putting these, uh, writing all of these characters on the wall and they didn't know what it was. And uh, in the, there's this uh, work called The Emergence of African-American uh, Literacy Traditions. Uh, and the author says about two weeks after she was brought to work in the Wheatley household, Wheatley Peters, uh, Phyllis Wheatley, that she was writing Arabic symbols on chalk on the walls. And so she was writing these Arabic symbols and though it was like illegal, for uh, slaves generally to learn how to read and write, she had her masters wanted her to learn how to to learn how to uh, read and to learn how to write because they saw that she was writing all of this on the wall and they were curious about it. And so Professor Will Will Harris, he says that based upon you know her writing of these Arabic of these Arabic uh, characters on the wall, he states that the progenitor of African American literature probably was Muslim, and even though. She uh, was Muslim. She likely came from a Muslim background because she was, as a little girl, was writing all of these Arabic uh, characters. She became uh, utilized in Christian missionary work. You know, they forced, as a young girl, you know, she, she didn't, have, she, they forced Christianity upon her. And even in some of her works, um, she's promoting uh, Christianity and she's saying that they that her being taken from Africa to the Americas it gave her the light of Christianity, and so with this it, this story of Phyllis Wheatley is significant for you know a, 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 a one major reason in that it challenges this notion of 
the, the, this idea that many Western governments promote that they have to, that they fiend this concern for Muslim women and want to save uh, Muslim women from oppression. When at the inception of America, we, at the inception of slavery, we have this Muslim woman who was forcibly taken from Africa and had Christianity imposed upon her. Now, you've mentioned a couple of really interesting points that I want to explore further. Uh, so, of course, when we talk about European colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade, we're really referring to two distinct periods of European thought. We've got the period of Christianity and um, I suppose those early settlers that arrived in uh, the United States. Uh, a lot of them were motivated by a evangelical or a uh, a subset of Christianity which uh, couldn't fit neatly in uh, in uh, mainland European society. But also we're talking about uh, the post-Christian era uh, where liberalism takes root across uh, the European and, and uh, Americas and, and what, what you have is a, a newfound belief in, in equality and, and uh, in freedom and uh, uh, these notions that man is born equal, which which in in, a set, in essence inspire Jefferson's uh, uh, treaties that that inspires the independence movement. How important uh, was Christianity, firstly, uh, in legitimizing or playing a legitimizing factor when it comes to uh, European uh, transatlantic slave trade? So there's a book titled The Rising Tide of Color Against White Supremacy by a European political thinker by the name of Stoddard Lithrop. And in this book, he gives an account of the role that various religions would have upon European quests for racial supremacy within Africa. And this is what he writes. Insofar as he is Christianized, the Negro savage instincts will be restrained and he will be disposed to acquiesce in white tutelage. Insofar as he has Islamicized, the Negro's warlike prosperities will be inflamed. Islam is as yet unknown south of the Zambia, but white men universally dread the possibility of its appearance, dread fearing its effect upon the natives, end quote. And so in this work, he makes it very, very clear that Christianity was key to the colonial project and to European colonialism in general, that they, the Christianity that was particularly fed upon victims of slavery as well as colonialism was one of pacifism, one where they, they were given this you know, white image of Jesus and told that this white image of Jesus was, was himself God. And so they sought to, in, in, in facilitating this process, sought to maintain uh, black people within a position of permanent subjugation, and they provided religious justifications for it. One of the primary justifications for slavery was this idea of the curse of Ham, which has its origins within rabbinical uh, Jewish writings, where they, it's from a Muslim perspective, this is a fabricated story, but they allege that Noah got drunk and that his son Ham saw him in this uh, drunken state. And upon seeing uh, Noah in this uh, drunken state, he began to mock his father. And as a result of him mocking his father, Ham was cursed with black skin and his descendants were meant to be uh, slaves uh, permanently forever as a result of that. Now, this is a total 
a fabricated story from the position of Islam. But unfortunately, this story was widely uh, uh, believed within certain rabbinical uh, Jewish sectors, within certain Christian sectors. And even unfortunately, uh, there was some, it actually picked up among uh, certain uh, Muslim scholars. Hakim, I would like to consider the matter you raised about liberalism. For sure, there is a clear discrepancy between the beliefs of Locke and Kant when they talk of equality and their insistence that slavery was an acceptable practice. But how about the founding fathers of America? Jefferson crafted the phrase in the American Declaration of Independence. He spoke of all men are born equal. Yet American independence, inspired by these liberal principles of Locke and Thomas Paine, did not lead to the emancipation of enslaved Africans. Uh, why is that, Hakeem? So one of the primary things to keep in mind is that th the rights that liberals suggest that people have, should have, is based upon their ability to reason, their ability to rationalize what it is to live a good life. They did not believe that Africans or Native American people had this ability to rationalize or to reason. They thought this was an exclusive uh, exclusive phenomenon of Europeans, that Europeans had this unique ability to reason, to conceptualize the world, to rationalize, and they did not believe that Africans could reason. Because they did not believe that Africans had the ability to utilize reason or to rationalize, they were outside of the social contract that uh, and John Locke very explicitly uh, believed that the failure of Africans uh, to establish a civil authority to preserve their rights through entering into a social contract meant that they were not entitled to natural rights. And so because they believed that Africans did not have the ability to reason or to rationalize, John Locke can say things such as, you know, white slave masters have the right to kill uh, black slaves uh, with impunity, even though at the same time he believed in these ideas of freedom and liberty, that these were rights that were only given to white men. And so even though in terms of even Jefferson himself, he, although he was, he, although he wrote the, uh, he made it played a major role influenced by Locke in the constitution, uh, Thomas Jefferson initiated the Native American Removal Act that uh, led to the extermination of Native American people because Native Americans, as well as Africans, were outside of that, the, their concept of a social contract. Maybe then we can argue liberalism of yesteryear never quite applied these universal concepts of equality. But what about progressive liberals today? The belief is that they are at the fore of fighting racial justice, racial injustice, and racial equality. Yeah, so this is something that many would argue when they'll say or hypothetically argue that, well, yes, they did these horrible things in terms of justifying slavery. Yes, John Locke did these terrible things in terms of serving as an investor in the Royal African Company that led to the enslavement of Africans. But, but these were violations of his own principles. And so, as you mentioned, they'll say, oh, well, liberals of today, we believe in Black rights. And this is what I think is the significance of people such as Malcolm X, and that Malcolm X very uh, boldly challenged this inclusion of Black people within, uh, within liberalism, and took a bold stand in saying that liberalism cannot sort of rectify 
the structural racism that exists within American society. And so he took a non-reformist approach to uh, the ability of liberalism to deliver upon his, upon his pro- promises. And when you look at the socioeconomic system today, uh, there's a good work by a um, sociologist named Luke Wakant where he analyzes many desolated urban inner city areas and and he looks at like the rise of mass incarceration and he looks at the rise of the prison industrial complex and he says that what, what's causing you know so many black men from these inner cities to be funneled into you know the mass incor- to be mass incarcerated and to be in prison is precisely because they don't have a place within the social economic system of America and they've been excluded within the uh, social economic society of America and so yeah I mean theoretically liberals can you know extend people's rights but the extinction of rights in and of itself isn't sufficient to remedy the you know centuries of particular uh, racial based oppression and the wealth and the plunder that has been garnered from it now can you tell us more about the stories of the early african muslim slaves who ended up in america yeah i did want to uh, speak more about that so and i so there was a a white plantation owner in in Jamaica, uh, by the name of of well, he was visiting a plantation, like a uh, European journalist by the name of Richard Robert Maiden, and he visited this plantation in Jamaica, and this is what he wrote in his notes. He said that I had a visit one Sunday morning, very late, from three Mandingos, uh, Negroes, natives of Africa. They could all read and write Arabic, and one of them showed me a Quran written from memory by himself, but written, he assured me, before he became a Christian. And so in this account, we see that there was, he doesn't say the brother's name, but there was an enslaved African who, you know, reproduced an entire copy of the uh, Quran just purely from his memory. But in his notes, he says that he was identifying as a Christian, which, you know, he, he had to do as a survival strategy because it was illegal to you know, openly proclaim one's Islam. There's also several slave narratives uh, that individuals that enslaved African Muslims wrote while enslaved. One slave by the name of Abu Bakr, in his in his slave narrative, he he wrote about he was he was actually a student of knowledge in Africa. He studied. There was a major Islamic university in West Africa in Timbuktu, the University of Sankar, and th- these were really highly educated individuals and in this slave narrative he talks about his up islamic upbringing of of studying arabic of studying uh, islam but sadly he talks about just being on the plantation how you know his faith and his ability to practice islam has been significantly diminished and so this is what he says he says i tasted the bitterness of slavery from them and its oppressiveness but praise be to god under whose power are all things he does whatever he wills Allah is our master, and God, therefore, let the faithful put their trust. And there's another journal article in uh, 1768 where a, a, a slave master, he said that one of his, um, one of his slaves had reproduced an entire uh, copy of the, of the Quran. And th- this was uh, re- really common among uh, slaves. There was another uh, brother, Ayub Diallo, who produced, even after the traumatic impacts of the Middle Passage, even after the traumatic impact of being on the plantation, they were still able to reproduce entire Qur'ans just purely 
off of their memory. And it's really a testimony to the strong Islamic educational institutions that existed within West Africa. And what's also significant to note is that Islam also played a monumental role within slave rebellions and inciting uh, rebellions to slavery. How so? So, you know, do, do you have any accounts of uh, Muslim-inspired rebellion against against slave owners? Yeah, one of the primary rebellions occurred in Bahia, Brazil. Uh, it's the, the historian Rias, he, he said that this was one of the most uh, successful urban slave rebellions uh, ever to take place in the Americas. And what's significant to note uh, is that prior, they had been planning this uh, slave rebellion uh, for years, and they originally scheduled it for the uh, month of Ramadan, on, uh, in the month of Ramadan, but unfortunately due to, um, the, the one of, one of, there was an interruption, and one of the slaves who told, one of the slaves told on them to the slave master, and so they had to like hurry up and sort of incite the slave rebellion. But one of the significance of this rebellion is that even prior to the rebellion, they found that they were passing along Arabic documents to one another. They had built like their own makeshift mosques where they were storing uh, weapons. And they really sort of, there was a strong Islamic component in that rebellion, so much so that the historian Rias, and th this is something that really challenges a lot of uh, Afrocentrists. Uh, discourse is that the historian Rhea says that in lead up to this uh, slave rebellion is that there was a lot of there was a, a lot of adherence to indigenous African religions who were in mass converting to Islam and so they they've uh, uncovered documents of in testimony of people who were just learning of previous adherence to indigenous African religions who were learning how to recite al-Fatiha learning uh, basic preliminary uh, Arabic. And the reason why he says that Islam play, played such a strong role in this rebellion is that he said that Islam made them, uh, not, made, made them not feel inferior, that Islam gave them that strength that they needed. And he said that many of the indigenous African religions, they were tribal religions. So they had like one God, they had a God that was like confined to this particular tribe, but it wasn't a universal religion. And because it wasn't a universal uh, religion, they couldn't as effectively organize cross-tribally among these uh, indigenous African religions. And so this is why uh, Islam took the lead in the slave rebellion. And so this slave rebellion, though, it, while it was monumental, the European slave masters, they were able to quell that rebellion. But one thing to take note of is that there was an Islamic scholar by the name of Lukatin who was one of the masterminds of the slave revolt, and they put him on trial for his role in the slave revolt. And what the prosecutor says in the in uh, seeking to convict him is that they they say that they were passing along Arabic documents and that they were passing around uh, Qurans. And he also asks asks Lukatin what 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 is his name. And each time they asked him his name, he says, my name is Bilal. And they asked him again, you know, we know what your actual name is. But he kept saying that his name was Bilal. His name was Bilal. And so it, that right there emphasizes, you know, the role that even, you know, the Sahaba, and the influence that, you know, the, the, that these Muslim slave rebellions had upon uh, the role that Islam played in influencing them to uh, rebel. And there was also another strong component of Islam in the slave rebellion that occurred in Haiti. So there was a French colonial, um, French colonial 
uh, individual who was in the French uh, military, they, the, the French were uh, essentially seeking to put down these slave rebellions. There was, and what he, and there, there was a war brewing between like the French and slave rebels. And one of the French colonials, he wrote that, uh, quote, during the wars I was obliged to do against the blacks, we often found written papers in the bags of the Negroes. Nobody understood these writings. It was in Arabic. And there's another account by, in a book called The Encyclopedia of Slave, Slave Resistance, where they document an individual by the name of Imam Makato. And they describe him as an erudite Muslim who wrote Arabic very well. And so um, from the recovery of Arabic, of Arabic documents and lead up to these revolts from, you know, the ability of many enslaved Africans to reproduce uh, Qur'ans uh, purely from memory, from, you know, even uh, Lukatin, who was one of the masterminds behind the Bahia slave revolt, proclaiming himself to be uh, Bilal. You know, this shows that the strong component that Islam had in sort of inciting uh, these rebellions, so much so that there were many, the um, Portuguese who were um, even combating, they, they had already had a history of fighting with Muslims, you know, in Andalus. And so when they encountered these um, Muslims, after the, after the slave rebellion, they, they amped up the pressure in terms of inhibiting all expressions of Islam. So much so that it's really unfortunate, but Islam did not uh, survive transgenerationally between the uh, start of slavery up until, you know, when so, uh, slavery, quote unquote, was formally ended, that Islam uh, was not able to sufficiently survive that process. And you can see that this occurred as a result of the persecution of slaves on the plantation. So there's another slave narratives by Omar Ibn Said, where he said that he ran away from, from the plantation just so that he could pray. And when he ran away from the plantation just so he could pray, uh, they put him uh, in a jail temporarily. And he, in a slave narrative, even though he quotes the Quran in a slave narrative, he says that he used to be a Muslim, but now he's a Christian. And so, and this is one of the uh, tragedies that, that slavery had upon, you know, Islam. when we talk about the war against Islam, we can't just only think of colonialism, we also have to think of slavery because slavery did major damage in terms of transgenerationally inhibiting the ability of enslaved African Muslims to transmit Islamic knowledge, you know, from one generation uh, to the next. You know, they couldn't teach their kids Quran, uh, Hadith, Sahih Bukhari. They weren't able to, even though a lot of them came from well-Islamic uh, institutions within West Africa, that process of slavery inhibited them from passing Islam down from the generation to generation. These are really amazing stories, Hakim. Uh, why haven't we heard more about these courageous Muslims? I note in America there is a, a move to place the history of the slave trade uh, in the American history syllabus in schools. Yet it seems that Islam is uh, a missing component. So why has Islam been removed from this historical narrative? Yeah, and I think this is, you make, you raise a, a very good point in that there's a lot of films uh, about, you know, slavery, the tragedy of slavery, but we never hear, for example, about the Bahia slave rebellion. We never hear about, you know, the Wolof slave rebellions. We never really hear or really study 
the you know the prominence of Islam in terms of the efforts that they took to um, so sort of secure Islam and to ensure that Islam as best they could could be could be practiced. And I think one of the main reasons is that even to this very day is that people recognize that Islam is a major major force against oppression and racial injustices. And this is what, what even in one of Malcolm X's speech speeches. Uh, Malcolm X said, you know, why at, at that time he was in the Nation of Islam and they were getting harassed by the FBI, by the um, various government government organizations who were seeking to prohibit people from going in their mosques and seeking to harass them. And he's like, why are they taking, you know, all this effort to prevent people uh, from, you know, learning about Islam? And he says that Islam as a force, it stands diametrically opposed to oppression and it stands diametrically opposed to tyranny. And so they fear the dawah to Islam. They fear of people being called to Islam, of people embracing Islam. And so this is one of the major reasons why there's so much silence around, you know, the role of Islam in inciting slave rebellions, the role of Islam in strengthening Africans to rebel against their slave masters is because, as uh, pointed out in one of the earlier uh, books, um, The Rising Tide Against White Worldwide Supremacy by a European political scientist, is that they saw Islam as this um, major threat against their colonial ambitions and within Africa. And so this is one of the major reasons why I think we don't get so much attention around you know, enslaved African Muslims. And this is why it's our responsibility as Muslims to sort of shine light on their story and to bring their stories and their narratives into the forefront. You work with uh, poorer black communities um, in your dawah activity, and presumably these communities are affected by crime, by drugs, by prostitution, by criminality. And the dawah of Islam, of course, has a, an immense impact on an individual and his or her life. It uh, recreates his life for him and, and develops a, a, a thinking in that individual that moves him away from such forms of criminality. So why would someone, why would the American state find that type of work a problem? Because surely it would clean up the communities that it interacts with. Yeah, and this is actually Malcolm X pointed out something similarly where he said that when you look at the role of Muslims in cleaning up the community of drugs, of gang violence, of prostitution, and all of these other social ills within the communities, he said because he said that the government should be thanking the Muslims for doing this, but the major thing is that once people, you know, embrace Islam, they then want to change their social political realities. They then don't want to live under the oppressive conditions that they're living within and they begin to to speak out against it and to organize against it. And so uh, in one of in several of Malcolm X's speeches, he discussed the role of structural racism in creating the conditions of poverty within these areas. And he said that the reason why you had so many people who were turning to drugs, turning to uh, these criminal elements was, you know, at a, as a coping mechanism to, 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 to just to survive within these areas. But then he says once they get, in, but it's a false hope, it gives them a false arrival because they only end up, you know, either early deaths 
or they end up incarcerated. Whereas Islam, because you change the condition within yourself, the social political realities outside of yourself begin to change and to transform. And they don't want the full transformation that comes as a result of Islam, even though it cleans people up, even though it helps people become more erudite and more studious, they don't want that full transformation to occur because the way that America particularly is situated is that it's based upon uh, oppression of entire groups of people. It's based upon, you know, there's a huge financial incentives to mass incarcerating people. There's even Hillary Clinton, for example, uh, utilized when she was in her uh, governor's mansion uh, office, office of her husband, they utilized prison labor in order to, uh, you know, for the governor's mansion. And so when prison is such so profitable and when drugs prevent you from really challenging oppression, there's incentives that the power structure and the oppressive system want you to be involved in those activities. And as Malcolm X articulated, is that Islam provides that very clear alternative. So are you suggesting the state would rather prefer these communities stayed mired in drugs and prostitution and criminality? Yeah, but in the way that America is situated, absolutely. And because especially within the United States is that these neighborhoods are so segregated. And so you have certain poor communities, you have more affluent communities. And as a result of racism, they're just entirely uh, segregated. And so it's not you know, the uh, rich, affluent person who are being impacted by these social ills. They're totally isolated from uh, from the, these social ills that occur. And so this is why there's even very credible evidence that drugs were funneled into many urban inner cities as a result of government help. There's, there's strong, credible evidence that the government was involved, for example, in uh, the crack epidemic and in putting cocaine within uh, the funneling of cocaine within many urban inner city uh, areas. And so, yes, they absolutely want many uh, people. They want our people on drugs. They want them in these acts of uh, gangs because it feeds their system of prison. And it it, it it inhibits people from effectively challenging the oppressive conditions that they're in. And on the subject of challenging oppression, what, what's your take on the Black Lives Matter movement? So I agree with the phrase that Black Lives Matter, because Black Lives do matter. They matter because, you know, we're creations of the law. We have value to life. And there's a strong history of of black life not being uh, valued, you know, by some of the most influential thinkers that shaped the modern world from John Locke, who, as I mentioned earlier, uh, said that black slaves could be killed with impunity, as well as from individuals such as Immanuel Kant. So I agree with the phrase, black lives matter. I agree with the need to combat police brutality and police injustices against Black people. But I do think it's very important that to honor the legacy of Malcolm X, to honor the legacy of, you know, the Muslims who were involved in the Bahia Slave Rebellion, to honor the history of the Muslims that were involved in rebellion against slavery in, in Haiti, that, that the struggle against oppression, that it takes an Islamic uh, approach to challenging these injustices that exist. When considering... Uh our approach to Islam. Uh, We know that Muslims belong to one ummah, one brotherhood, and so that unifies us as one 
Islamic community. And that means something, I suppose. You know, we are colorblind and uh, we go beyond uh, the rhetoric that liberalism supposedly was meant to be this idea that uh, Francis Fukuyama spoke of this, that, you know, we, we've we now reached the end of history. And, and I suppose he's part of what he meant was uh, liberalism has created a society where black and white uh, could live side by side and uh, they would not feel excluded, but rather they would be judged according to their merits. Now, you and I would know that doesn't exist. And Islam actually uh, is the only way, it's the only religion, the only system that provides a a way by which uh, the human mind uh, moves away from these superficial barriers between uh, that cause problems and cause distrust and cause conflict between them. But sadly, what is the ideal and what is the reality sometimes differs. And um, often it's the case that uh, a number of Muslims are still impacted by uh, this uh, feeling of asabiyah and this feeling of uh, uh, superiority. And often it comes down to colour. But what's your, what's your take and experience of this? So as Muslims, it's very important that we set our sight on like the ideals of Islam as Muslims, you know, we've been put into various races and tribes in order to get to know one another. And Islam strongly, very strongly uh, condemns racism. It really strongly condemns asabiya. It very strongly condemns these things. But I think there's a problem in that we don't live in this Islamic ideal. And we live in a world that has been shaped by the system of white supremacy as an actual social political system that exists on the ground. And so what I see happening a lot is that when many, you know, Muslims are critical of white supremacy as a social political system, there'll be those who are like, oh, you know, we're, Muslims are supposed to be colorblind. Why are you talking about white supremacy? When when we talk about white supremacy, we're talking about an actual, you know, political and social economic system that exists. And so, yeah, we we need to struggle for this ideal, but we can't be blind to the sort of injustices that are actually occurring. Now, Hakim, I've been wrestling with this idea of white supremacy. I think our discussion today has um, has connected white supremacy with the formation of liberalism, and and um, there's nothing within the foundation ideas of liberalism, in particular those that were put forward by people like uh, uh, Locke and Kant, uh, that disincentivized early liberals from embracing this racial hierarchy. And I can also see uh, from our discussion today about slavery, that white supremacy was inherent in the mindset that allowed them to pass Christianity to uh, large numbers of Muslims and, and people of other faith in order to civilize, in, in inverted commas, these people who uh, they regarded as being uh, inferior. Uh, and I can also see that in today's uh, world, you have seen the rise of populism and Donald Trump's ascendancy was, was largely down to uh, his ability to harness this uh, feeling of superiority amongst uh, large parts of the white population in America. I, I wrote an article about it very recently, 
in relation to the New Zealand attacks and, and mentioned how white nativism is on the rise and, and, and it's a uh, it's a it's a theme that's going to uh, undoubtedly grow in international politics. Uh, but your critics will probably argue that this emphasis on white supremacy may, uh, inadvertently at least, may carve a division between uh, Muslims who want to embrace Islam from uh, from the white community. Uh, as we know, Islam provides a, a, a solution for all people, whether you're black or you're brown or you're white. Islam uh, provides a way to heal those divisions that exist, uh, that men have created, that exist between them. So I suppose, how do you handle this criticism that um, if you emphasise white supremacy, you may be inadvertently, at least, and I know you're not, you're not in, in a sense trying to do that, but you may be inadvertently carving a division and, and um, creating a barrier between uh, yourself and, and those who may want to embrace Islam who are white. Sure. And I'll give you an example. In, in the gardens, in, in the gardens is a community in Chicago that's uh, predominantly African-Americans. The way that this community was situated is that you had the Chicago Housing Authority which at, it, at that time sought to enforce racial segregation. And so they put this community and they designated that this was a Black-only neighborhood, that Black people who were going to the South Side had to live in this certain area. They put it near garbage incarnators. They put it near toxic waste dumps and all of these other cancer-causing causing, uh, properties and agencies within this community. And that community is very heavily suffering as a result of that legacy. In the north side, you have, you know, predominantly affluent uh, white neighborhoods. Now, on a theoretical level, let's, you know, pose a hypothetical that every, um, you know, w the white communities on the north side, they took their shahada and they embraced Islam. That action alone wouldn't be sufficient to remedy the racial injustices that occur to this African-American community, that action alone, when you would have to talk about, okay, what from the Islamic tradition, what as Muslims can we do to rectify this injustice that has occurred? And there are many brilliant African-American uh, theologians who have talked about white supremacy as a system of idolatry, where they say that, you know, this given, Black people were given this image of a white Jesus and white white people was elevated to the status of almost like an idolatrous idolatrous gods through this image of a white Jesus and the social political situation that occurred as a result of it. And so this argument that focusing on white supremacy as an actual political structure alienates uh, white Muslims or white people who may want to embrace uh, the dean, it sounds as absurd to me as saying, well, if Black people challenge, you know, the Jim Crow legislation, or if Black people in South Africa uh, challenge apartheid in South Africa and say that apartheid is a system of white supremacy, which it explicitly is, that this is going to alienate uh, white Muslims. White Muslims and Muslims in general who, who, who embrace Islam their struggle in, in embracing Islam, they should they should recognize that this system is unjust and they should recognize that Islam has a cure to this as an actual 
political system and a natural political arrangement. But to say that we shouldn't focus on white supremacy as a political system because of its potential alienating impacts, to me, what it really goes directly against, you know, the legacy of of Malcolm X and it downplays the experiences of enslaved African Muslims who weren't able to even pass Islam down to their children as a result of explicit laws that said Africans had to be Christian, that Africans could not uh, have open expressions of Islam. These were laws that impacted uh, African Muslims and prohibited them from practicing their faith. And so when white supremacy, uh, white supremacist laws have had a direct impact upon, you know, the spread of Islam, that to me serves as the major, the uh, the major antagonistic force against, you know, the Dawah, against Islam, more so than focusing on white supremacy and its alleged potential alienating impacts on white converts. Uh, I mean, I, I remember when I was, uh, you know, in my formative years when I was growing up and, and trying to work out my identity, uh, and, um, you know, Malcolm X film came out, right? And just after the autobiography, well, I came across the autobiography and, and then the film came out and, you know, it it really did help me to frame my identity. And, you know, of course, my connection with Malcolm X, you know, or at least the the uh, the shared sense of of uh, of history was not there at all, right? You know, I, I grew up in London and, and it was a, a different reality for me and a different battle. But I could make a connection and, and it helped consolidate a view in my mind that Islam is, you know, it transcends a colour and, and it's a it's a faith that really does make uh, us brothers to one another. Yeah. One thing that um, one of uh, the latest interviews that Malcolm X um, had before he was martyred is, you know, he talks about his experience going to Hajj and seeing the universality of Islam. And the, um, the journalists asked him, well, does this mean that, you know, you can see this happening, you know, in America? And Malcolm X says, you know, if white Americans can see the oneness of God, that they can perhaps see the uh, oneness of humanity. But he says that the particular laws that have existed within America in the uh, political arrangement within America, he said that he didn't see that this, um, that, that, that this would really seek to manifest without this, without the need for, without Islam. And so he said that the civil rights legislation, the certain bills that they passed to sort of remedy structural racism he didn't see see that as being sufficient to solve uh, the structural racism that that existed. But so yeah, I mean, as Muslims, we we are taught that we've been put into different races and tribes in order to get to know one another. But it just so happens that you know the way that Europeans have colonized the world, the ways in which Europeans have established settler colonies within the Americas to you know create segregation. And this, this is why Muslims from our faith. Now, we should be inspired to uh, challenge oppression and to challenge racism, because if we've been put into races and tribes to get to know one another, then how can things such as segregation occur? How can things, how can we live in a society in which, uh, you know, they still have de facto manifestations of segregation, in which we have uh, blockbusting, in which you have uh, redlining and other forms and other practices to keep people apart? and to keep people from being brothers. And this is why a white person who, and I, there are a lot of white converts who 
you know, come to Islam through the autobiography of Malcolm X. And when they do, they should be inspired to uh, to get rid of, you know, the racism in society and to combat the racism in society. Now, before we wrap up, it's probably worth asking you to give your take on the recent debates that took place on social media about critical race theory. Um, I mean, I, I must say, I, I mean, I found the debates um, uh, slightly problematic in the sense that um, often, you know, these debates on social media don't really go anywhere and, and, and they don't shed very much light on, a, on important topics. But anyway, this debate about critical race theory, uh, at least from some quarters, uh, uh, there was an implication that uh, CRT was in contradiction with Islam. Now, of course, you you are a proponent of uh, critical race theory. So what, what's your take on this approach? Their critique is that critical race theory is being utilized by Muslim activists and that it has some contradict con contradictory elements with Islam or that is somehow harming the Aqidah of Muslims. Uh, this is their framing of it. At its core, critical race theory is very, very simple. And critical race theory, it, at, in its most simple essence, it says this, structural racism was able to maintain itself post Jim Crow, meaning after civil rights legislation ended Jim Crow laws, structural racism continued to manifest itself. And critical race theory, this is why I, I was seeing many Muslims saying that critical race theory is liberal. It's not, critical race theory is a critique of the inability of liberalism to sufficiently deal with and grapple with the issues of structural racism to eradicate racism within society. This is what critical race theory at its essence is about. And it emerged as a, as a product of African-American legal scholars. So African-American legal scholars conceive of critical race theory as a way to challenge, uh, as a way to analyze how structural racism was able to maintain itself uh, post Jim Crow. And so for me and my work in Chicago, this is how I became acquainted with uh, critical race theory, is that so the Chicago public uh, schooling system is very, very heavily, heavily segregated, even though, you know, there's no b laws on the book saying these schools must be segregated. So you have these underfunded, uh, largely impoverished African-American schools, and that's juxtaposed to predominantly more white, more wealthy, affluent white schools in the north side. And so Derek Bell, who's considered the founder of critical race theory, he put forth an amazing article where it called uh, Serving Two Masters, where in this article, Derek Bell says that the reason why they did away with laws that mandated school segregation was not because it, it was this benevolent gesture that they just wanted to improve the situation of African-Americans. And he said that African-American schools, they really just wanted more resources in their schools. But what Derek Bell says that the reason why the, America did away with segregated schools was in the context of its uh, geopolitical war with the Soviet Union, its proxy war with the Soviet Union, where the Soviet Union was essentially utilizing the racist laws that America had as, as a... Um, as a way to critique them, as a way to, for the Soviet Union to say that America was not a friend to newly decolonized uh, African nations because they're committing these injustices. 
And Derek Bell also documents that there are lawyers in the NAACP who argued that America should, you know, get rid of a segregated system precisely because it, it hurts America's image in the context of the Soviet Union. And so it, it's a very uh, nuanced explanation that sort of gets to the heart of, well, why didn't, Amer- why didn't the U.S. government, why didn't various cities uh, force enforce, you know, the desegregation of schools as diligently as they should have? Why are Chicago public schools still in a de facto state of segregation? And so this was my exposure, you know, to critical race theory and sort of combating uh, the, you know, segregated state of schools. So that's why I was like so perplexed when I saw many Muslims who were like, oh, critical race theory isn't, you know, from uh, Islam. There's no critical race. It's not an alternative theology. It's not like Christianity saying, you know, there's three gods in one. It's not not like Hinduism. It's not an alternative theology. It's a way to analyze. It actually bolsters Islamic critiques of liberalism because it says that that legalistic mechanisms to challenge structural racism aren't sufficient, that it hints at the fact that you need something else in order to do that. And so this is why, you know, Muslims should be, you know, studying a critical race theory. Uh, Black Muslims, we don't have the luxury really not to like be cognizant of the, of of these uh, issues that exist as it relates to structural racism, because it like directly impacts our lives and the communities that we work on. In order to be effective in dialogue, you have to be cognizant of the political realities that people are facing. You have to be cognizant of the social situations that people are facing in order to be, you know, competent in your dialogue. And so this is why I think critical race theory is an important uh, source to draw from. You know, I read academic works of, of critical race theory is just to stay, you know, politically aware as to, you know, okay, how has redlining impacted this community? How is this community, you know, being impacted by uh, segregation? And so this is how I study critical race theory, but in my study of it, I don't, I've never encountered anything the, in this core, in the core essence, in the core basics of critical race theory that conflicts with Islam. And so if you're standing, now, there are, of course, many critical race theories. They aren't all Muslim. They haven't all taken uh, their shahada. But is a standard for critical race theory that in order to be compatible with Islam, every single critical race theorist has to be a Muslim, has to do, has, has to, you know, consult the, um, has to have all their social and political beliefs 100% in harmony with Islam. Because if that's the standard, then I, I can concede that critical race theory isn't compatible with Islam because there are many academics within critical race theory that aren't Muslim. But I would say that the basic core essence of critical race theory in terms of how racism was able to maintain itself post Jim Crow, how racism operates within American society, that basic political analysis does not conflict with Islam. And Muslims should be aware of that political analysis and to be inspired from their tradition to combat against structural racism in society. Rabbi Hakim, Jazakallah Khair. I think uh, we've now uh, really exhausted a, a range of discussions. This has been extremely thought-provoking and, and fascinating in, in many respects. And uh, I've learned some uh, something new and uh, uh, it's, it's really uh, allowed me to frame uh, a number of thoughts I already had about uh, liberalism and its, uh, and its impact upon mankind. And, and inshallah, I pray that... Uh, 
you continue your efforts and your efforts uh, uh, achieve uh, a lot of success, uh, of course, in, in this life, but uh, more importantly, uh, when you visit Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If someone wanted to uh, find out more about your activities, um, how would they uh, access uh, information about your organization and uh, your activities? Yeah, sure. So I, I do want to uh, put this out there. So on October 12th, uh, inshallah, at 2 p.m., uh, there's going to be an event in the uh, community of Oblak, an event that seeks to introduce uh, African-Americans and neighborhoods to Islam through the autobiography of Malcolm X. And so there'll be Muslims posted there just handing out over 100 copies of, auto, of the autobiography of Malcolm X, as well as copies of the Quran and just engaging, you know, brothers in the community about Islam, what Islam stands for. You can find more information on that at blackdowernetwork.com. And you can find uh, me on social media, on Twitter. My Twitter hash, my Twitter name is Muhammad, M-U-H-A-M-A-D, 7 Hakim. And so you can follow me on Twitter. But thank you very much, brother, for inviting me on your program to be able to discuss these uh, critical these critical issues as it relates to, you know, the history of enslaved African Muslims, as it relates to critical race theory. And I think all of, the, all of what we discussed is just so uh, interconnected because, you know, when, when you think about uh, critical race theory and it, it bringing light to the situation of white supremacy, you know, that political arrangement, it impacted enslaved African uh, Muslims. So, you know, I make dua that, you know, the Muslims can, uh, benefit uh, from this lecture in any way that I can, in any way that they can, and may Allah forgive me if I made any mistakes in this discussion. But thank you, brother, for having me on. Amin. May Allah subhanahu wa taala give us uh, tawfiq and barakah in uh, all of our endeavors. Please subscribe to Thinking Muslim uh, on your favorite podcast app. Uh, on iTunes and on Stitcher and on the Google Podcast app and a number of uh, podcast apps uh, carry the podcast. And uh, please follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at thinking underscore Muslim. But until next week, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakat. Yeah, I think you have one with Daniel, right? I did, yes. Okay, okay. Well, I'll be uh, interested in watching that one. <laughs> have a listen to that yeah um but uh but yeah maybe one day i'll get you and Dan oh, i think you had an had a discussion with daniel before i remember yeah i think we need like a neutral moderate uh moderator <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'll propose that to him actually it would be great to have a <laughs> <laughs>
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 